If you're young and ambitious and creative and intellectually motivated, get after it right now on the internet. Your chances are much higher. It's awesome. And um, that, that that's my that's my gospel at the moment. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you're listening to Society in Question, where we use nuance to explore and challenge the social and cultural forces that are shaping the human condition. Today, we are joined by social scientist and political theorist Justin Murphy. Now, Justin was a permanent lecturer at university for five years before he became disenchanted with academia because he felt it was stifling his creative and intellectual curiosity and productivity. He decided that the internet was actually proving to be a better place to channel his intellectual passions. This resulted in him leaving his permanent position as a university lecturer to instead create a YouTube channel, a podcast, and to become incredibly active on Twitter. Aside from his podcast and YouTube channel, he's now become quite a strong advocate of creating your own presence online and using the tools of technology to cultivate your ambition in a more independent way. That's a big part of what we'll focus on here in this podcast particularly learning about Justin's background, his current projects, and what he's learned from his successes as an online intellectual content creator. Obviously, intellectual content is not something that is easy to create as it's not always the most entertaining and it is usually quite challenging. So it's quite amazing that he's actually been able to carve out this little niche for himself. And in this episode, we try to dig in and learn a little bit about how he did that and what are some of the ways that he's hoping to help other people do the same. So where are you where are you calling in from today? Where are we getting you from? I am in Albuquerque, New Mexico. <laughs> New Mexico, huh? Yeah. What took you there? Well, I left academia and my buddy Jeffrey Miller and his wife Diana, who's also my buddy, uh, live out here because uh, he's a professor at the University of New Mexico. And you know, Albuquerque is kind of a strange place, and I don't think they have as many you know uh, friends and interesting interlocutors as they might hope for. So uh, they were kind of like, come live with us. It'll be fun for us. We'll have, you know, new energy in the house. And by the way, we'll give you, you know, cheap rent. (laughs) So it's, uh, you know, the easier transition out of academia. So it's a win-win for both of us. Yeah. Do they have as much new age culture there as other parts of New Mexico? You know, it's hard to to say. I don't really get out that much. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a hermit except I'm extremely online. So in some ways I'm way more social than the average person. Like I actually interact with more people on a daily basis probably than the average person, but I see less faces uh, also than the average person in real life. So uh, it's a bit strange. Yeah. Well, I, I'll be happy to dig into that. Uh, what What do you think the impact of that is for you? I mean, like, do you feel like you get the social fix from that? That's an interesting aspect of technology to think about. Oh yeah, um, I, I think real intellectuals should avoid the social fix. <laughs> I think society, I think society is poison for true intellectuals. I really do think that. I think one of the real problems today is that people in their twenties and thirties they have way too many friends. It, it really is a dampening force on the ability to think creatively and freely and honestly. I think if that's what you want to do with your life, you should really try to 
cultivate a kind of social wilderness. You, you want to be as free as possible from just the, the petty, mundane, everyday sociological pressures that really do affect us quite strongly, I think. Yeah, I mean, was it, was it Cooley, I think, who talked about peopling, the idea that you basically are seen as, you see yourself as the way you think others see you. So if you surround yourself with too many other people, you might have, I guess, a more fragmented sense of self. Definitely. Or just the more friends you have, the more feelings you are worried about hurting and the more you are going to be spreading yourself thin, trying to please, uh, you know, a bunch of different factors. And I think the best way to solve that is to just purposely have as few friends as possible. I mean, I think it's important. <laughs> I really do think that. I mean, I think it, obviously yeah. it's, really, it's really important to have a few friends, but I think if you're an adult, you really only need like two or three friends and then family. And uh, for the most part, you know, I think the, I think all these 20 somethings and 30 somethings running around in the big cities with like huge friend groups. I I really do think that explains why so few of them are able to say or do anything particularly interesting. I think there's some too that. I mean, I think we get caught in the uh, trap of social validation. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question about does the online stuff give the social fix, you know, in a certain way it does. Like I don't, I don't really ever feel lonely and it isn't because by being active online every day and putting stuff out there every day, I do get that psychological satisfaction of participating in society. And, and I do feel like I am talking to people and I at least imagine that they're hearing me and, uh, and, and I do look at other people's stuff occasionally, although even that on the internet, I, I try to minimize. But in, in short, I do think actually that having an extremely online life does pretty much check most of the boxes you need to check to just feel like, you know, socially active. And then when you combine that with an actual um, kind of escape from IRL society, a kind of purposeful removal of yourself from everyday face-to-face -face interactions in society at large, I think that's actually the ideal combination for, for a creative public intellectual in today's day and age. And for you, that seems like a, like a more interesting journey because I know one of the things that you've talked about from what I've seen is that you don't really consider yourself a typical, you know, uh, live streamer or blogger or, you know, whatever term might be used. And it's interesting that you, it sounds like you're finding more um, almost like philosophical and even social fulfillment from that than you were when you were in an academic setting surrounded by a bunch of people whose goal was to you know, hopefully study and learn. Like, what was that transition like for you going from that, going from a university situation where you're surrounded by people who you would expect to challenge you in that way, and then moving to the internet where you don't feel like it was like your typical setup for you. And yet, it seems like it resonated really well with you. Mm -hmm. I mean, hell yeah, you pretty much nailed it in that. I feel so much more like a real full-time, serious, professional, active intellectual now than I did as an academic. Just, it, it's really that simple. It truly is the case. And I knew this and that's why I left academia because I was basically, as an academic, I was slowly playing with the internet more and more and I was building up a platform, you know, blogging more and and podcasting more and and posting videos on YouTube. I had been doing that for probably about two years pretty seriously 
um, before I had my kind of grand conflicts with my employer and decided to, to, to take the plunge away. And I decided to take that plunge away from academia because, precisely because of what you're saying. It was just so palpable and so obvious to me that what I was able to do on the internet was in every dimension in, in terms of the, the freedom, the satisfaction that it gave me psychologically, the creativity that it allowed for, and even ultimately the actual quality of the, of the, of the content that I was starting to produce in pretty much every dimension. It just seemed obvious that the internet and the work I was doing on the internet was vastly superior and more attractive than pretty much everything I was doing within the academic mold for career purposes. And so that's why when my employer started uh, giving me flack for my, you know, uh, taking liberties on the internet, I was just like, academia is not worth it anymore. I'm not, I'm not giving this up. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not coming back from this. I'm not, I, you know, if, if you're going to make me choose. And it was funny because my Dean, I mean, I don't want to call anyone out by name. It's not really personal. So, so I'll just say like the, the administrative apparatus, when the administrative apparatus started to descend on me, it was really interesting because they seemed to take it for granted that of course I would do anything to save my job. <laughs> like, of course, you know, tweeting on Twitter is not going to be as important to me as keeping my, you know, high status, you know, secure paycheck. And it was a really profound kind of realization for me because the reality, my felt reality was the opposite. Where it was like, I couldn't really find any good reason to give up the internet stuff just to keep this job. And that it was actually obvious to me. It was like, I found it quite funny because it was like, they were talking to me as if it was obvious. Of course, I would kind of like fall in line and give up these seemingly trivial little things I like to do, like tweeting, tweeting like wild man or whatever. Like, of course, I would give that up if they just asked me to. Of course, I would give that up because I have so much to lose with this great job. But when they, when they started to ask me to give up the internet stuff, the exact opposite was the case. It was like, I, I couldn't find a reason why I would give up this amazing growing uh, kind of kind of internet prospect, uh, this platform that was emerging for me. I, I couldn't find a reason to give it up just for this kind of like dead shell of uh, kind of fake intellectual life that really I was never very happy with anyway. And that was when I really not only kind of realized, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to just basically take flight and 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 figure out my own path, but I got really interested from that moment in in that in precisely that difference of perception like it, it it became clear to me like a lot of older people think like my administrators think they thought it was obvious they could just kind of whip me into line but for me as a younger as a younger person in academia um you know i'm only uh 33 which is relatively young i got my first kind of tenure track job when i was uh 27 or 28 relatively young um i have i'm, I'm much closer to you know and an attitude that sees the internet and the various forms of internet success as more viable, as more attractive, and as as more motivating than than a lot of my older peers. And that's when I kind of realized this isn't just about me. It's not just that I want to have a more independent intellectual life and I want to build that on the internet. It was more like, oh, I'm at the cusp of something. I'm I'm like right at this cusp between these. Gen Xers and boomers who think the internet is this like low status, 
weird thing that's not real. And the, the Gen Z and millennial people who increasingly see the internet as the main thing. I'm on the cusp of this. And I decided not only to go with kind of radical independence on the internet for my own personal reasons that it just seemed in every way better for me, but it really became about figuring out this larger puzzle and, and kind of expressing it and articulating like the transit, the larger transition that is going on here um, that I'm only a, a, a small you know symbol of. Yeah. I, I relate to that a lot being that I'm, I'm going to be 33 in a month myself. And I've always felt that, you know, growing up, we were right on our, our age was right on the cusp of everything having mm-hmm. watched, uh, you know, dial up and AOL move into smartphones with this insane access and kind of what technology has become. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's interesting though, cause there's still, I, I, I still have this, like, I think hopeless romanticism about academia and, mm. and what it, I guess, could be in terms of like, a almost like a, an intimate community where people could just dedicate themselves to personal growth. But it seems like that is a quickly dying dream these days. Yeah. You know, so many people have that romanticism and I definitely did. I mean, I, I, I built my whole like early adult life on it. Uh, but you have to really, I think, go through it and, and really get to the top and peek behind the curtain for that romanticism to be finally and truly uh, disillusioned. What, can I ask, what is your experience personally with the academic system? Yeah, I mean, uh, I just went through undergraduate as a computer scientist and psychology major. Um, and then I, I've considered jumping back in for a master's. But um, I, in, in many ways, as much as I feel like that would be something that would be super fulfilling, I can't help the fact that I'm butting up against people like you, um, you know, Jordan Peterson and, you know, so many other thinkers who are just like, the university really is undermining our ability to learn in, in a strange way now. It's, it's it's become such a rigid tyranny. I think so. I mean, it all depends on what you're trying to do. Like, I, I tell people when they ask me this all the time, I'm very clear and I think uh, balanced about this. There are still some reasons to go to formal school, whether it be undergrad or master's or PhDs or whatever. There are still some reasons to do those things. They're just not, uh, you know, it, it's, if what you're really after is learning per se, then you probably not, right? Probably the, the, the only remaining good reasons to do those formal degree programs that still exist are for credential purposes. Um, if, there's a, if there's a straight and clear line between where you're at right now and some specific type of career outcome that you can only have by having that piece of paper, then yeah, sure. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn anyone off from that. Um, but the, the thing that I am really taking aim at, and I'm, and I'm pretty, pretty vocal about this, is especially young people who have intellectual aspirations that are, that are genuinely not careerist aspirations, meaning smart. I, I talk with tons of smart, capable 20-year-olds or 20-somethings or uh, who you know, they're, they're brainy and they're smart and they really want to learn more and they really want to achieve something intellectually. Like they want to, they really want to write a book or something like this. And they actually don't care that much about becoming a professor or getting high status in some sort of institution. They just have genuine drive to do intellectual work and they want to, and they want to make the most of that and they want to achieve something on that. If that is your goal, if that's the type, that's the type of person I'm trying to speak most directly to 
because that's the type the type of person who is going to be destroying themselves by going into a master's program or a PhD program. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, you gain things from these programs for sure. There are positive side effects. I think like discipline and in inculcating a kind of uh, scholarly, yeah, discipline is, is a, is a positive byproduct. You will get, there are some good reasons to do a PhD again, like I said, but if all you want is just to learn and to do the work, then I think pursuing one of the many models that are internet-based uh, is much more immediate, much more satisfying, and it allows you to uh, really craft a system that is geared to your strengths and 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 not geared to your weaknesses. And I think your your the immediacy of it is much better. The rate, uh, I think, the probability of success, um, success being defined as just some sort of non-trivial impact and readership, uh, is is much more immediate and and a much higher probability than than going through a, a grad school program and 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 much less stressful and and painful. I mean, the fact is, for a lot of people trying to go through grad school, um, when all you really want to do is your own intellectual work. Uh, it, it's just an unnecessary burden that imposes all kinds of mental health costs and and and, and stressors and the and and the reward or the probability of some kind of uh, positive outcome in terms of readership or income is actually uh, really quite negligible unless you're going for the careerist the specific careerist outcomes. So yeah, that that's that's my my very specific. Point I'm very vocal and, and a bit aggressive about is if you're young and ambitious and you just want to do intellectual work, um, I just see so many people who are basically either they destroy themselves going through grad school or they never even do anything because for whatever reason they, they don't end up going to grad school or they don't succeed in grad school. So in fact, they never actually do anything. Um, and and that's I just think a terrible tragedy. If you're young and ambitious and creative and intellectually motivated, get after it right now on the internet. Your chances are much higher. It's awesome, and um, that, that that's my that's my gospel at the moment. I'm really really kind of preaching pretty aggressively because I, I see it so much. I see so many talented, uh, capable young people who aren't doing shit because they think they need to go to grad school first, and they're waiting in, until they like have a PhD, and that's just so stupid. And it seems like a libido killer in that way you know where it's like it kind of takes away some of the passion i i, I know several totally. people who are running like phd depression programs and whatnot dedicated mm -hmm. to dealing with like ptsd and trauma and depression and high anxiety that's coming from studying it's like if this is your passion should it make you feel this way do <laughs> you know it's totally doesn't seem like um i don't want to stick too much on the academic stuff but i do find it interesting the the point that you made about kind of getting behind the curtain um and and maybe reconciling the failures of the university model these days do, do you think there is like what did you see behind the curtain when you kind of lost that romanticism and do you see a, a way forward for universities to kind of catch up with the more like technological self-starter model um, and maybe a way they can capture that essence without just completely, you know, crumbling apart as a system. Okay. So two questions there. The one is what did I see behind the curtain? And then is there a hope for academia? So I'll go in order. If I forget the second one, remind me. Gotcha. What, what you see behind the curtain when you finally kind of break through into kind of establishment academia successfully is nothing really so profound or shocking. It's more just the mundane reality 
that this is a bureaucratic career and 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 that's pretty much all it is so it's not really surprising or anything particularly interesting to be honest it's 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 actually the opposite it's 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 that you think there is a kind of romantic mystique around being a professor and that if you can get a you know a tenured gig as a professor then you know you have all of these kind of romantic hopes and 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 dreams of what that is going to involve and then you get there and you're just a, a bureaucrat really and, and and you pretty much spend almost all of your time doing generic bureaucratic paper pushing of one kind or another and that's pretty much a full-time job but then you also are expected to do research and publish research in academic journals like on the weekends <laughs> you know um i mean it's not you know it's 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 highly dependent on your traits and and capacities so you know i also when people ask me because i get a lot of questions from younger people asking about what they should do and um i try to not just be a, a naysayer i say you know there is a very small number of people out there who can do the large volumes of bureaucratic nonsense and also do interesting profound original research work um those people tend to be highly conscientious extremely conscientious um you know so people i don't know i think about someone like tyler cowan uh the economist and blogger i mean the man is able to read so much academic and non-academic and publish academic articles and maintain a, a, a daily blog for for years on end um yeah if you have the traits and capacities of someone like tyler cowan then yeah sure you maybe you can make it in academia and enjoy your life and have intellectual freedom and public impact and 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 creativity uh but i think people like tyler cowan are just extreme outliers and if you don't have those traits then pretty much um you know even if you're fairly you know productive and fairly disciplined person you're you're going to spend most of your time doing non-intellectual forms of bureaucratic activity in one way or another and yeah so that that honestly was i think just the main the main thing for me that i realized was like there really never comes a time when all of a sudden your free times your free time opens up and you're just focused on high quality free genuine creative intellectual work like that time never comes no matter how far i got and and i made it quite far i was quite successful um every, you know pretty much most of your time is filled with bureaucratic crap and to do intellectual work you have to basically squeeze it in and i just found the bureaucratic crap so kind of exhausting and and annoying that it actually made the 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 time i did carve out to do intellectual work um i was just anxious and 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 a bit exhausted and a bit tired and um you know to the other thing is you have to for your academic work for your research to have an impact and to succeed to be respected and influential that itself is is tied up into all these instrumental games where you have to decide what journal you're going to get it in and what literature you're going to engage and all of that is essentially strategic instrumental decisions and i see instrumental rationality as kind of the opposite of genuine kind of substantive rationality and and kind of radical open creative honest thinking uh, so long as you're trying to subordinate your thinking to these instrumental goals um there there's a real kind of mutually exclusive uh trade off there 
And I just found that pretty much no matter how hard I worked, no matter how, how I tried different time management techniques, I tried different, you know, uh, I, I tried so many different things and pretty much I never once ever felt like, ah, I'm finally in a place where this is like a happy and healthy, uh, productive intellectual life. Like it just, it just never, ever came. And at a certain point you have to kind of, um, you have to call a spade a spade. Yeah, totally. And then I guess to, to bring it forward to the, the next point, um, is there a way that you're going to see that bureaucracy maybe shift in the future where it won't be so soul crushing or just uh, cognitively, cognitively demanding that it will actually free up some space for that kind of a personal creativity and personal growth and research? It's a good question. Uh, Personally, I think the university is such a megalith that it's going to persist for some time. I, I would not imagine the university as an institution literally disappearing anytime soon. So I, I'm sure it will carry on um, just because human beings are very slow to update and big institutions with all these stakeholders are extremely slow to relinquish power. And so I suspect it's going to carry on in one form or another. These institutions are going to live on. I just think they're going to become more and more zombified. Like it's going to be th- these problems I'm describing are going to become worse and worse. And what's going to happen, I think, and this is already happening is the types of people who become academics are going to become different types of people. I think that's already um, been happening for quite some time. So once upon a time, like in the 70s, people would pursue academia because they were kind of lazy, free spirits, and they wanted to just like read and and be chill, and they wanted to escape the market pretty much. Um, That was a thing for some time. Uh, but then as capitalism accelerates and the university becomes this increasingly uh, intense kind of like capitalist bureaucratic admixture to get into academia and to succeed in academia, you know, to get that perch, to get that paycheck, you have to be an extremely efficient and brutal competitive operator, right? So what's happening is it's just selecting over time for different types of people. And I think the people that are academics today and that are happy as academics today, and many of them are, ha- are happy to be, to be honest, you know, um, are just different types of people. Like, I think that's something I realized when I, when I got into academia and as I was describing to you, I was never really happy. I, no matter how hard I worked and no matter how much I succeeded, even, um, it, it, it never seemed to get any more satisfying or intellectually, uh, uh conducive. And I puzzled over that for a long time. Like I hate, I pretty much hated it. Like no matter how much I succeeded, I I was never happy. And I I puzzled, like, why is everyone else seemingly like pretty content? And then I just started realizing, oh, they're different types of people. They're very different types of people. And really what is different is they, what they want is a paycheck and they want security and my hat's off to them. I'm not, I'm not, no disrespect. Those are fine things to want in life. You know, they want to raise families and they just want, you know, they want a title that sounds cool. You know, they're a professor that gets a lot of respect. Who doesn't want a title that sounds cool? By all means, I'm, I'm not, I'm not dismissing that. Um, people want a title that gets social respect and they want a good, a decent paycheck that's very stable. And um, pretty much like with those two things, people will do almost anything for those two things, right? Um, but though the type, and that's just normal. So those are normal human beings who want those things and will pretty much go through whatever bureaucratic 
you know, tasks they have to do on a weekly basis to get those things. The only thing is that those people are not intellectuals. And so it, it, that's, that's what's going on here is that actual intellectualism is, is evacuating. Um, and, and, and the people that are opting into this system increasingly are only, by definition only going to be those people who uh, are highly content with a, with a kind of dearth of intellectual freedom and who are highly submissive to like bureaucratic drudgery. So I think that, that that's going to carry on. But I just think the actual intellectuals, um, you know, young people who are intellectually gifted and capable and ambitious who want to write books and who want to say interesting, profound new things, those people are just going to learn what I'm learning, uh, but they're going to learn earlier and that knowledge is going to become more widespread and they're just going to know to stay clear of um, this like losing game. Well, I think that's a struggle that a lot of other people have seen. And I like how you frame that because as the intellectuals fall out, kind of fall through the cracks, it seems like more of it becomes about activists stepping in to fill those cracks. Like I, for me personally, like I've seen, I, I live in Portland, Oregon, and I've seen the the university here just become so hyper uh, left that it doesn't want to have intellectual conversations. I actually recently started holding events just to try to get people to talk about difficult subjects mm. with respect because it's just, it seems so hard sometimes to expect the university or other uh, aspects of the culture here in Portland to, you know, think intellectually rather than think as an activist. Mm -hmm. so, so that's an interesting, um, I never thought about that kind of swapping of personality types in the university presence. Um, but from, from that, what I would like to jump over to, I guess, is that, you know, if, if you broke away from those, those shackles, you got free, you got liberated. Now you got this time on your hands. I know you're doing some projects, but what are, what are these projects that you're focusing on now that you have the free time to kind of think and, and be intellectual and curious and creative? Yeah, for sure. Thanks for asking. I'd love to tell you about them. So the main priority is going to be, and it's going to remain doing high value, original, sophisticated intellectual work. And I, I'm, I really need to keep my eye on that prize because that's essentially what this is all about, right? It would be easy for me to get sidetracked into any number of different like ventures, you know, just to, just to stay financially afloat in my post-academic uh, transition. And so this is something I'm, I'm very sensitive to and alert to. Uh, my North Star is I'm going to find a way to make most of my time focused on doing original, creative, high-value intellectual work at the, at, the, at the height of my capabilities. So at, at a kind of social scientifically sophisticated and, and philosophically sophisticated way, um, you know, equivalent to like what I would be producing in peer-reviewed academic journal articles when I was doing that. I, this, is my ult, this is my main goal at the moment, and I think ultimately, um, because that, that's essentially what this entire adventure I'm on is all about, is figuring out a way to have a true sophisticated intellectual life, a whole life that is um, more free, more productive, and also, you know, uh, financially sustainable than what is available by being a professor. That's, so that's the mission that I've set myself. Uh, of course, to do that, no one's really done that quite yet in, in a really impressive way that is reproducible for other people. So to do that, I have designed a kind of strategy, I guess you could call it, 
And the first phase of that strategy, I'm, I'm, I'm still less than one year out of, of quitting academia. And my wife has been very good. We're, we don't have kids yet. And we're relatively, you know, modest people who don't need too much money to be happy for ourselves. So she's given me time and she's given me, you know, a lot of support too, to, to figure things out. And so, but, you know, obviously I don't have, I don't have infinite time. Uh, uh, you know, we want to have kids and all of that. We want to, we want to, you know, uh, advance our lives. So I don't have infinite time. So what I decided to do pretty much is I would spend uh, the the first period out of leaving academia to do a high volume of small experiments. Because my my objective in this current phase is to basically get as much data as possible on what works and to just get some baselines, some baselines of if I write a book and self-publish it, how many people are going to read it? How much will people pay for it? How many hours will it take to do that all in? If I do an online course, how many people are going to pay for it? How, how much will it make me? How many hours will it take to do that? Um, when I write blog posts, you know, how many, uh, how many new followers or email subscribers do I get per blog post? If I do a blog post a week, you know, these sorts of questions, uh, I need it. What I, what I decided to prioritize in the first phase of my post-academic transition is uh, trying a lot of different things and paying close attention to the data and doing things pretty much as quickly as possible. Um, not overthinking things, not trying to make things perfect, but optimizing for um, kind of volume and just experimental data to get base rates. That way, when I'm done with a bunch of these experiments, I have something to go on and I can make empirical projections about what should I double down on and what is going to possibly work in a, in a, you know, more successful, impactful and, and, and financially sustainable way over the next several years. So what is some of the data that's risen to the top from these experiments um, or lessons or maybe just um, personal affinities? What are some of the things that maybe you discovered that you enjoy doing most, maybe topics you enjoy discussing most or uh, mediums that are working the best for you? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, for me, Yes, so many lessons, so many kind of observations through all this experimentation. Um, man, a few. That's a great question, though. Let me think. Uh, I'm really looking forward to sitting down and pretty much like sharing all the data and the finances of like how much these things earn and what the prospects like, and and also kind of noting what seems to have worked well and what seems to have not worked well. But off the top of my head, well, one thing that comes to mind is there's a major issue that psychology, like consumer psychologists and marketers know very well, but academics, I think, don't understand really at all, uh, which is this idea of uh, perceived value. This is something I've, I've kind of been noticing a lot or thinking a lot about, and, and, and really kind of getting it was, was kind of a major breakthrough for me. Um, how things are priced and how things are, or how things are freely available really affects how people perceive the value. And so you like there are people out there on the internet who are really smart and make amazing content, but it's all free. And sometimes because of that, it doesn't actually get the respect that it deserves or the valuation that it deserves. So um, uh, one example that just comes to my mind is, uh, I don't know if you would have, I don't know if you would know about this person. Um, again, it's all very subcultural and, and niche nowadays. Everything is. Um, but uh, a guy I know named John David Ebert, who is a uh, really interesting, smart dude. He he actually wrote a bunch of traditionally published books uh, back in the day, and then kind of 
gradually chose to become more and more independent. And now all of his books are self-published. And now, so he's this just very independent kind of idiosyncratic, but, but really legit, smart, interesting cultural commentator and, and nonfiction author who self-publishes books. Um, I think he did, he, he traditionally published a, a few books in like the eighties or something like that, or the nineties. Uh, but in the past few decades, all of his books are self-published. Um, he makes tons of YouTube videos that are really quite good talking about philosophers and breaking down uh, all kinds of books and, 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 and philosophies and philosophers. And he's quite smart. He, he puts out really good stuff. And, but I've, I've noticed that he's, he's tweeted a few times about how it's like um, sometimes he feels like disrespected or like he doesn't get, he doesn't get um, as much credit for it or, and, and he doesn't make as much money as, as, as he would like. And um, I, I started to realize like if, it's because he doesn't, someone like that needs to do something like an online course or a book where it's like, you just put a little bit of effort into the framing of it and the packaging of it. And then you put a big price tag on it because you're saying, I am, this is worth something. It, it, it is worth something. And if you do that, people like, you take like four lectures by a competent person, like John David Ebert, giving a philosophy lecture on YouTube, you know, there's hours and hours of that content just for free. And no one really no one cares as much as they should. Um, whereas if he, if he just packaged those lectures into an online course and sold it for 500 bucks, people would be like, wow, 500 bucks, this, this must be valuable. And people will pay 500 bucks. And when, and, and when they pay 500 bucks, then they're actually more motivated to find the value in it and, and, to, and to make the most of it. And so, yeah, they're, they're, that just give, that's just one example of, the kind of thing that you don't really learn or realize until you experiment with, with tons of, of content and different models. Like I've, I've done tons of free stuff. I've done some things for money. I've just like, yeah, just experiment wildly. And this is the kind of thing that you learn that you don't learn unless you experiment wildly. Like what, what's really cool about all of this is that pretty much what I'm realizing is I'm just disintermediating all of the value that I was providing to universities. And I'm just now providing it on the internet. Like it's literally almost point for point, right? Like all I'm doing now is, and all I plan to do, all I want to do is write books, teach courses and provide and facilitate and support an intellectually stimulating and, and encouraging productive community. Um, and that's effectively what I have kind of figured out how to do through these experiments over the past year. So that's pretty much everything I was doing in the university and now I'm doing it on the internet. And I mean, I'm not, I'm going to do some financial reports. Like I'm going to make all of this super open and tell people like where I'm at with stuff. And, and I, so I don't, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to share any details. Anyone wants to know about all of that, but I'm also, um, uh, I just haven't gotten around to like uh, analyzing the data and, and posting it quite yet, but I'm pretty sure that um, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely on track to basically replace my income fully from academia, like in the next sometime this year. I'll, I'll be at, at least 100% replacement of what I was making as an academic. So what's next for you? What's coming down the line? I don't want to keep up too much of your time, but I want to know where you're going with all this energy that you're building as you uh, move towards, you know, this financial freedom and, you know, you're starting to gain some traction with all these ideas. What I would look to do next, like over the next year is take the lessons I've learned from my experiments this year and pretty much re do more of the things that worked do less of the things that didn't work that well and 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 put more care into doing them 
more optimally pretty much like this year i've just been moving very fast um many of the things i've done were not as good as they could have been uh because as i said i've been purposely optimizing for speed and and maximum kind of experimental incoming data uh but now that i think things are like viable i just want to do more of more of yeah so basically write more books and probably do more courses and grow indie thinkers more. Um, so, so yeah, pretty much. Um, but, but that pretty much everything I've been doing seems to be working. So I just want to do more of it, but, but definitely there have been some things I've done along the way that were a waste of time or, or I won't do them next time. And then there are things like in the production of a book and the launch of a book or the production and launch of a course, there are things that it's clear would have been worth it, but I just didn't have the time to do or didn't bother doing that next time I'll do. So, so th- that's pretty much what, what I want to do uh, now over the next year is do more of what I'm currently doing, but do it better, do less of what doesn't work. Oh, and also kind of increasing volume of things, possibly by bringing on collaborators. So I think honestly, when I show the income report for the things that I'm doing, um, I mean, look, it's not, I'm, it's not big bucks. Like I'm not, I'm not making big bucks, but I do think that everything I'm doing is making more money than people would think it would. And I think when I show when I show the income reports of everything I'm doing, I think a lot of people are going to be pleasantly surprised, and they're going to say, "Huh, okay, there's more here than I thought. There's more. There's more of a prospect here than I thought." And when that happens, I suspect it will be easier to convince other people to do something with me or kind of under my umbrella. Um, and and also, like I've learned so much about how, how to build actual systems for production and distribution and marketing and all of that. And, and that stuff actually does take a lot of time to build up, but I've, I've learned it all. And I actually have a pretty smoothly humming system already up and running. So I would be well poised to bring on other people. So in particular, I think courses are particularly exciting, but books also um, courses are a little bit more exciting financially because they're, they, they have higher value. So people are genuinely more willing to pay for them. Um, so one idea I have is I would really like to find a few other people that are competent, um, intellectually sophisticated people who are, who are good at communicating, um, who have something to share with the world that is valuable, that is kind of within my orbit of, you know, themes or kind of, you know, on brand enough, not, not, not you know, tightly necessarily, but um, I think I'd like to build, uh, to build out my catalog of courses, possibly with other people. And, um, that would be, that could be a multiple, that could be a real multiplier, right? Because I could, I could feasibly host and support and basically run and manage, um, like five online courses that are actually, you know, the the author of the course, the the instructor of the course is someone else. I could possibly do like five at one time or something like that. So that could be a real kind of multiplier of, of everything. Um, so, so those sorts of things I'll start to think about. Um, but yeah, I just want to keep writing books and I want to keep doing courses and uh, grow indiethinkers.org. And that's pretty much what I want to do. Yeah. I love it. I look forward to seeing uh, all this data come out because I feel like a lot of people will be super encouraged by knowing somebody has actually paved this path and they have a chance to actually make it doing it as well. Because I think that's a big limitation for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I think so too. I think people are going to be uh, pleased and inspired. I mean, I also I don't want to overhype it. Like it's not it's really not big bucks. But like I said, it's, it's more than I think people realize. And, um, 
you also have to, I also want to do some research work to show people what the numbers really look like for people who go down more traditional institutionalized paths. Like they're not pretty. People overestimate, people overestimate like how many readers you're going to get for a book that's published with um, some well-known traditional press and they underestimate how many readers are you might get from self-publishing. So it's really, it's the comparison that, that is most important. I mean, in any event, if you're doing like creative, highbrow, uh, unique, independent intellectual work, either for institutions or outside institutions, you know, your, your audience is always going to be small, right? I mean, intellectuals have, have never made much money, right? So I, I'm definitely never going to be selling some sort of like get rich type of scheme, but it's more just like, get minimally financially sustainable as if you can get minimally, if you can get even minimally fi financially sustainable and live like a very modest, but financially sustainable life doing proper sophisticated intellectual work full time, totally independent. I mean, that's a major breakthrough, I think in, in kind of uh, history, <laughs> even I might even say, and yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm really motivated to basically like, you know, uh, crack that nut and then show other people how to do it. I love it. Well, Justin, man, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today, man. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you for thank you for your interest in my work. And um, thank you for asking me some good questions that I might have not never been quite uh, directly asked before. So yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. And I hope this was, uh, you know, useful or fun for you and your audience.